Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and biffs football giants on the nose. I'm 2-0 at the Etihad, Kevin Day, and he is Liverpool University's 2-2 at Anfield, Kieran Maguire. Not too shabby, Kieran, and it's our 200th episode. I don't know which is more of a miracle Palace and Brighton getting points yesterday or Saturday, or us reaching 200 episodes. I, I think possibly the latter, because at least Brighton and Palace have got professionals associated yeah. with them, whereas we're a couple of old South London blokes who who still can't work out where the bu- where the on button <laughs> is on our computers. Um, yeah, we're, we're currently running about 17 minutes behind schedule because we had to record, obviously, the sponsors' advert and. Uh, couldn't manage it. <laughs> it took, se- took several takes to first of all press the right button, as you say, and then <laughs> to read out some simple words correctly. <laughs> um, we've got one quick news story, Kieran. It's questions day, but we have one quick news story. And uh, this is a, a couple of teams have done this recently. It's almost becoming a theme, but Blackburn Rovers training ground has been sold to a new company set up by the club's owners, Venkis London Limited. Yes, uh, and and this is a case of uh, it's a bit like getting your tax return in on the thirty first of January to avoid paying the fine. Um, the EFL changed the rules on the first of July this year, which meant that if you sold a property asset uh, at a profit, it could no longer count towards the profitability and sustainability rules. What, what people you know, normally refer to as FFP. Um, so you know, we have seen uh, other clubs uh, use that particular uh, – I think loophole is an appropriate word, given that mm. you weren't allowed to do it before 2016. They, they changed the rules in 2016, and then we've seen Aston Villa, Reading, Birmingham, Sheffield Wednesday, Derby County – all uh, mysteriously sell their stadiums to to companies connected to the club owners. Um, Blackburn, under the Venkies, have been spending ludicrous amounts of money compared to what they actually generate. And and they were in a a genuine uh, danger of uh, breaching uh, financial fair play rules. So just before the 1st of July, they they sold the training grounds for £16.6 million. And you've got to give... Credit here to local reporter Rich Sharp at the Lancashire Evening Telegraph. And I'm sure when people get jobs as football journalists, they they didn't expect to spend their time trawling through 
company's house records and uh, land registry records, but he did a fantastic piece of work to to, to snap this up. Um, so ha- is this good news or bad news? Well, it, it's it's good news from an FFP point of view. Um, I think I think we've already said that we're a little bit twitchy about separation of uh, property assets from the football club itself. The the new company which has been set up, and I'll do my best to mispronounce this or pronounce this, Venkatshwara London Limited, um, was set up with just a thousand pounds worth of shares. So not sure where it got the sixteen point six million pounds from to physically buy the ground, but um, you know I'm sure the two parties will will come to some form of arrangement with regards to that. But it is good news in, in the sense that Blackburn have been spending. Uh, I think it was £187 on wages for every £100 that comes through the door uh, in their most recent accounts. And, and therefore, they, they they were having to very much mind the pennies um, to make sure that they didn't go into uh, a breach of, of FFP. I'm sure that they've had the training facilities professionally valued. And uh, therefore, this is uh, this this is a market value, um, and therefore it should qualify under the uh, the old FFP rules um, at the EFL. Look, Kieran, you quite rightly praise the local journalist who's been investigating this. But if you if you know that the new company's only technically got got thousand pounds, and they're just buying something for sixteen million, and he knows it, well, why haven't the EFL spotted that and and asked for explanations? Well, one can only presume that uh, the EFL will get involved in this when the uh, when the accounts are published, uh, oh, because okay. that's when they do their formal assessment. Um, yet for all we know, there could have been correspondence between the two parties. Um, they're under no obligation to uh, put this out in the public domain. So, uh, you know, if, if if Blackburn had been smart, yeah, they would have probably give, given the EFL a heads up, say, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, this is the price, which we've had confirmed, presumably, by a professionally qualified, qualified surveyor, um, and it's going into our calculations, and the EFL will go, well, okay, if, as long as it's done by the, the 30th of June, you're fine. A couple of days later, no, no chance. Okay. Now, on to questions. And um, this is where I wish I could do impressions, Kieran, because our first question comes from James Stewart. I was, I was thinking the same. I, and I, as I'm, I, re- I, I can do a passable Michael Caine. Not before the others, not after the others, with the bloody others. And I do a very good, uh, I do a very good impression to my auntie Pat, but no one will know how good that is. So. <laughs> no but James Stewart has a question about valuations, and it's a very valid and topical one. James says that Mike Ashley sold Newcastle for around three hundred million pound, but the figure talked about for Arsenal around the Spotify bid was one point eight billion. What in particular makes Arsenal one point five billion pound more expensive than Newcastle? Okay, um, when you value any business, and it doesn't have to be a football club, ultimately the value is going to be determined by the estimated amount of cash that the club is going to generate um, positively in future years. And um, when I say positively, I mean revenues, less costs. So as far as Newcastle are concerned, um, one of one of the, the cash measures that, that I use is, is something called EBITDA. And uh, if you take a look at Arsenal over the last six years, 
they've generated over half a billion pounds uh, in this in this particular measure profit measure whereas newcastle's was 130 million so that means that arsenal are generating around about four times as much money um as newcastle so therefore you'd say well that gives them a, you know, a four times valuation why is it a six times valuation well the other thing that you take into consideration is risk now whilst arsenal have been a bit bobbins in in the last four to five years They've never really been in danger of being relegated. But if I was looking at Newcastle in the Ashley years, the club was physically relegated twice. They've had a poor start to the season, so therefore you'd factor that in as well. And and what you do is you you say the, the more the risk associated with the investment, the lower the value. So you put those two features together, and that gives you Arsenal being worth you know, six to seven times as much as as Newcastle. There's the London factor as well, which means that you can extract more more money from sponsors because people like coming like coming to London. That's not that's not mm. disrespecting Newcastle. Right? You, know, you, you and I, we've both been to Newcastle. Fantastic place. But from a business point of view, how many big corporations have their head office or even satellite offices in the northeast of England? It, it's 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 not happening. So therefore, you know, they're more inclined to sign up with London. Um, Arsenal have got a bigger stadium. Um, they get far more match day income uh, in in a good year. Arsenal will make more than a hundred million pounds in in match day income sales compared to Newcastle's twenty five. Um, and uh, you know, th- there's another elephant in the room. Arsenal have continued to invest in their facilities over the course of the last decade. And one uh, one area which I think we've highlighted where Mike Ashley in particular has been very tawdry is his refusal to, to put money into the stadium, into training facilities, into the academy, into medical facilities. So the new owners have got an immediate cash investment to cash to to, to catch up. It's a bit like if, if you've got two houses side by side and one of which has gone into disrepair, you'd pay less for that house because you think, yeah, I've got yeah. to go and spend a load of money starting it up. Yeah. Um, did you say EBITDA? EBITDA. Hmm. What does that stand for? That stands for earnings before interest, taxation, depreciation, and amortization. Oh, I was right. That's what I've written down here. Ah, we, we are married <laughs> too long. No, I said, I'll tell you what I've written down here. I've, I've written down EBITDA, Doctor Who character, question mark. <laughs> is what I've written down. And underneath that, I've put possibly Welsh detective. <laughs> uh, the chances of me actually working out what that acronym stood for, Kieran, was slim to none. Um our next question comes from uh, Ben Watson. Uh, if it's the ex-Palace player, Ben Watson, then hello, Ben. And if it's not, hello, Ben. Uh, Ben's question is an interesting one. Uh, they're all interesting questions. I don't know why I bother to say that. Ben says, how much of an effect do the public stock markets have on football clubs? If corrections and or bear markets appear, does that affect football clubs' abilities to make investment in the clubs, e.g. players, non-playing staff, facilities, etc.? And for those of us who are not au fait with, with stock market parlance Kira. What, what's the bear i've heard the phrase bears and bulls obviously but what's a bear market uh, a bear market is where the viewpoint of shareholders and investors is that things are going to take a a negative outlook ah, okay. um, and and therefore it tends to be associated with a reduction in the value of shares whereas a bull market uh, is is where everybody gets a bit giddy and and uh you know it's, it's a buy 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 
um, you know, Eddie Murphy's Trading Places, I still maintain, is as good uh, a, a proper uh, analysis of, of the way that the markets do run. That they, There is very much a herd process uh, cool. in, in their behaviour. I wasn't expecting that sentence to be used today, Kieran, but <laughs> you know, the Muppet Christmas Carol is actually a very accurate representation of the book, so you know, exactly. these things can happen. <laughs> um, so Ben's question then. Ben's question, yes. Um, there are two types of uh, ways ways of buying and selling shares in, in, in the form of football clubs. Uh, in terms of public markets, it's where you or I could uh, – Go onto a website, and if you want to buy a thousand shares in Manchester United, in uh, Juventus, I think in Borussia Dortmund, in in Ajax, uh, in Celtic, and so on, um, these these clubs have their shares publicly traded. So therefore, there is an active market where people are buying and selling shares on a daily basis. Um, the other type of company is called a private company. And the only way that you can buy shares in that market is if you go to an existing shareholder and say, I'd like to buy some of your shares. This is what I'm prepared to offer. And they've got the opportunity to to sell, to say yes or no. So those transactions tend to be much fewer and far, far between. Um, with, with regards to, to Ben's comments about um, a bear market, and, and as, you, as you, you, you're right to to push back on that in sense of yeah, what's it mean? It means that the the shares shares in general are falling in value. Um, I don't see that impacting upon a club's day to day activities because if you take a look at a football club especially a publicly traded club, where is it getting its money from? It's getting its money from broadcast deals, from the sponsors and from selling tickets. That's completely independent of a bunch of dweebs with spreadsheets deciding that a particular share in a football club's overvalued and therefore selling it um, at the existing price because they think the price is going to go down. So so the two things are, in certainly in the short term, they, they are completely independent of another of each other. In the longer term, if if uh, Manchester United decide that they want to raise, say, three or four hundred million pounds in a few years' time, because um, they want to invest in better facilities, uh, in in more infrastructure spend, or or to fund, uh, you know, uh, it, to fund more spending on, in the transfer market itself, then it would become an issue. Um, because if the share price has gone down, if you want to raise four hundred million pounds, then you have to offer more shares, and that's going to mean that the existing shareholders, uh, their shareholdings, are going to be further diluted, which which tends to become a, a bit of a vicious cycle. Mm. I, I was fairly convinced that a discussion of bear market would have led us to the Blackpool nightclub, Kieran, but uh, <laughs> we're obviously both in a more mature frame of mind this morning. Um, our next question comes from Brendan Nevin. And Brendan Nevin says, when are parachute payments made? Are they given to clubs as soon as they are relegated, in addition to their Premier League finishing position prize money, or are they made at a later date? Um, uh, well, Brendan, they're, they're made at a later date. Um, ultimately, this is part of the distribution of monies by the Premier League. Um, so therefore, if you are relegated in 2021-22, then the parachute payments are your entitlement to a share of the TV deals for 22, 23, 23, 24, and 24, 25. Um, and the way that the Premier League distributes the money, and 
here I'm I'm going slightly on hearsay, slightly on uh, trying to persuade one or two people to tell me a bit more than they probably like to. Um, is is that um, the Premier League makes a big payment to all of the clubs, including the Premier League clubs themselves, but and those clubs that are entitled to parachute payments um, during the summer? It's, it's normally uh, it's normally in July. Uh, or Ju- it might sometimes could be the end of June. But it's normally in July, um, and that money is useful for for a few things. First of all, you know the clubs have got wages to pay, and they've not they're not selling tickets during the month. But also from the perspective of the TV companies, they've got to fill space during the summer. One of the ways of achieving that is, is the transfer rumor mill. Yeah. So if they give money to the Premier League, who in turn gives it, it to the clubs, it allows the clubs to go out and sign players, you know, to pay those first instalments, and it, and it gives Sky and BT something to talk about. So there's, as always, when it comes to money in football, you might say, well, it's very generous of the TV companies to give so much money up front. It's in their self-interest to do so. So when that money is given to the Premier League, I reckon around about 60% of it then probably goes to the individual clubs as a first instalment of what they're entitled to over the year. And therefore, that would be given to the clubs in receipt of parachute payments as well. And then I think there's sort of two or three instalments spaced over the rest of the year. Do you know if there's any flexibility in that, Kieran? Because in in my world, uh, actors... uh, writers, comedians sometimes, will, if they've done a job, finished a contract, uh, and the money's not due for four or five, six weeks, occasionally the agent will go, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you. And then uh, is there a flexibility? You know, if a club is in serious financial trouble on relegation, could they go to the Premier League and say, is there any chance we can have some of it now? Or is it just, it's... That's not possible given the amounts involved. No, that that wouldn't be possible. But remember, we we have discussed on, on quite a few occasions where where clubs have gone to lenders and say it's, ah, the, it's, it's a glorified uh, and, and and this upsets people in finance when I say it's a glorified form of payday loan. But it is a glorified form of payday loan, no matter how they try to dress it up. Um, and they say, well, we're entitled to money for the next two to three seasons from the Premier League. These are the due dates. Um, are you are you as a bank prepared to give us that money now? And then when we receive the instalments from the Premier League, we'll give you that money back and yeah. we'll be paying you interest on top. Okay. Richard Bushell. Hello, Richard. Richard says, you often focus on the costs of players, but how much do clubs spend on terminating manager contracts early and how much is paid out when poaching managers from other clubs by way of compensation? Also, and this is a very interesting part of the question, what's the legal basis for this? Because you don't hold a manager's registration in the way you do for a player, or do you? No, you you don't hold the manager's registration, but managers signed fixed-term contracts. Now, if the club dismisses the manager, um, and unless that they can prove that there has been gross misconduct, then the football club is in breach of contract, um, and the manager is entitled to compensation for that. So, so what will normally happen is um, the the club will make an offer to the manager. The manager will say, "Well, that's a bit crap." Um, and therefore probably approach the LMA. Uh, the LMA will go back to the club and say, you're in breach of contract. You know, the, 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 my, uh, our, our member has, uh, ha- has worked. He, there is no evidence of, of gross misconduct. Um, 
and, and therefore we think you should pay him up. And then then the lawyers get involved, um, and, and you know, in, and the, the 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 football club. I think my understanding is that they have to, uh, you know, put something out in terms of uh, you know try to go through mediation. Um, they'll often make a derisory offer, so the manager will reject that. Then it will go to arbitration, and then you reach this final settlement. So, it, so it can get, um, it can get quite ugly. Uh, you know, I, I know when uh, when my club Brighton when, when they dismissed uh, Gus Poyer, um, that was uh, for gross misconduct by, by all accounts, and, and therefore uh, no no settlement was made. So, you know, it can be financially beneficial to the club. Uh, in terms of poaching, um, now you know it, it, it can never be proved. Uh, you know you have to go through uh, the uh, the correct protocols, but but again, normally a a club knows when it's going to uh, sack a manager um, mm. and and will start to put feelers out in place before the manager is sacked. Um, if that, uh, if the manager that they are approaching again has a fixed term contract, then the club would be able to say, well, you know, if if the manager leaves, there's a breach of contract, so we are entitled to compensation. So therefore, you're not transferring his registration; you are giving the former employer um, compensation for breach of contract, and that tends to come from the clubs that's that's doing the poaching, and it's in everybody's interests for this to actually go through relatively smoothly because the last thing you want is for you know the club that's on the receiving end to start getting arty to say well yeah, we've got a contract of employment we therefore are going to stick by it and we're going to threaten to sue you and and it could make things very ugly so as soon as as soon as the clubs you know, start to realise is he is a goner. He's a dead man walking, and we, and we, and we you know, we, we know where it has happened with clubs recently uh, in the Premier League, for example. Then wheels are starting to take place behind closed doors. If you talk to some of the more, um, shall we say, veteran ex-managers, Kieran, who are still littered about the punditry business, it seems that poaching managers was a much simpler process back in the old day. You just met someone on a motorway station service bridge, accidentally dropped a huge packet of cash, and then <laughs> and then dropped and then gave me a phone number. That seemed to be the way to do it. So I, I, it always makes me laugh when Sky say so and so have been given permission to approach another club. It's like really <laughs> well, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the approach has already taken place. Of course, it has because you know why why bother to approach the club unless you sounded out the manager. Yeah, well, technically it, it can't happen, so it doesn't. Techni- but, you know. te- oh, technically it can't. But, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll let we'll let producer guy sort out the legal niceties of that last bit. Yeah, yeah. We um, we we know that producer guy has has been talking to both Michael McIntyre and the Swiss Rambo on a number of occasions. We just leave it at that, won't we? Oh, of course. And we also know Guy for all his loyalty. If if he was approached by another podcast, <laughs> he'd be bye, boys. It's been a lovely pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> I'm off to LA. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items. 
to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. And now it's time, Kieran, for our weekly game of <laughs> being bamboozled by a fairly simple-looking surname. Um, and also, I'm guessing this is an Irish name, Kieran. And as, <laughs> yes. As both you and I know, <laughs> that, that, that can, working on the basis that none of my cousins can actually settle on a uniform way of pronouncing our own <laughs> surname. Um, I'm going to go Sean Leon, but it could be Sean Lehane, or it could, it could be Sean... Fourth call, you know, you don't know. That'd be more Welsh than Irish, but uh, L E H A N E. He's a Plymouth fan. Let's put it up. Sean Leon. Uh, no, I'm going to go Lehane. Sean Lehane. Uh, I'll give all the options. Producer guy doesn't bother to edit any of it anyway, does he? So, uh, Sean says in an update earlier this year, Plymouth Argyle owner Simon Hallett said the club's finances had been further improved by a successful claim against our business continuity interruption policy. Have you heard of other clubs being able to do this? And what sort of payout might such a policy typically make? Uh, for example, did it cover the lost revenue from matches where tickets and hospitality had already been sold, as the case was with us before Exeter, just before the first lockdown? This is something we talked about at length when lockdown started, because a lot of clubs simply couldn't afford the premiums for this sort of policy, could they? Yes. Um, business interruption insurance is normally there for uh, if if there's property damage. So yeah, if you have a flood or a fire and therefore you're, you're a restaurant and you can't open, um, it, it's, it's a way of uh, allowing the business to uh, you know, pay, pay some of the other bills whilst the... Uh, you know, whilst the infrastructure issues are being dealt with. However, some business interruption insurance policies um, do cover what's what's referred to as, and until I've done my research here, infectious and notifiable diseases. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting to say that, uh, yeah. other than uh, coming back from trips to Amsterdam. Um, <laughs> but um, this, uh, was, was this covered by COVID? Well, um, there was a big test case which went through the Supreme Court um, earlier this year. Um, and the good news for companies is that they, they do appear to be covered. Um, it looks as if the total cost to the insurance industry 
is going to be in the region of about two billion pounds. But you've you've got to really here check your small print. Uh, now, in the case of Plymouth, I believe the settlement was around about two point four million pounds. So you've got to give a huge mm. amount of credit to to Simon Hallett. Um, and the rest of his team, uh, and, you know, and, and I've said myself, I, I think uh, you know, as a as a club, I, I think that they have they are extremely uh, well run. That's that's not a criticism of the previous owners, um, yeah. uh, who who's uh, yeah, I think just they just reached a point where they couldn't continue to put the same amount of money into the club as they had done previously. Um, but uh, you know, we, we've had Simon on the show. We've, we've spoken to to people connected to Plymouth, and it, it does appear to be run um, with the aim of being a sustainable club on, on a long term basis. This is uh, this this is sensible planning. But you know, as you rightly pointed out, that the premiums for these things, especially when clubs are living from hand to mouth, it, it's one of those. One of those costs where you think, well, you know, it's not nothing's going to happen. Yeah, fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. Um, and that's always a gamble with insurance. You know, for example, you know, what if Derby County had had business interruption insurance? Potentially, they wouldn't be in administration today because they would have had a. Yeah, you know, they've lost around about twenty million pounds in yeah. in gate receipts, and and you know, all the people that have lost their jobs and the uncertainty involved, and all the huge costs being run up by the administrators, that those wouldn't have arisen. But they made their decision, and that's not a criticism. You know, you, you make the decision in business as you go along. Yeah. Um, another question on insurance comes from Michael Hartley. Um, now, we have covered this topic before, but there's a detail in this question that I'm really interested in. And I suspect 80% of the people listening to this pod, when I come to it, will go, yes, I've always wondered that. Um, Michael Hartley says, I've been thinking about player insurance. Is it a club or player responsibility? What do players need to do to keep it valid? I've heard players talk about not being allowed to go skiing, for example. Also, and this is the bit, why do insurance companies allow players like Jack Grealish to wear such small shin pads? And what his <laughs> recent shin injury mean he can be forced to change this due to insurance going up? And that's, you, know, you, you go to any pub, before a football match on which football is on TV and Jack Grealish is playing, and half that pub will be going, why is he allowed to wear them? Why is he wearing, what's the matter with him? And then somebody will say, oh, look at his hair. Of course he wears little shin pads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's that, but yeah, it yeah. A, I think it's a really interesting question because I would imagine the insurance on a player like Jack Grealish is fairly hefty. And insurance companies are not wanting to pay that out. And they, they must have a heart attack every time they see him going on the pitch. Well, well, that is if uh, Jack Grealish is insured, because we don't know whether that's the case or not. But, um, oh, surely, I would have thought. Oh, is that possible? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, m- my understanding is that there is a um, that there is a Premier League policy uh, which all clubs subscribe to, but the payouts for that are, you know, I'm, I'm going to say laughably small. It, it, and we're talking millions of pounds, you know, two to three million yeah. pounds for, for a player who's just been sold for a hundred million. But what clubs have is therefore that they've they've got two choices: a they can uh, in, insure players against the risk of a long term career ending injury, um, but the premiums again are very very high. Right, um, and, and that will put even Premier League clubs off. If you're having to pay out you know, millions of pounds a year in premiums, and 
you know, the average wage of a player is two and a half million pounds. You know, if they pay out huge sums in in premiums, um, would that money would that money actually be better paid uh, into the playing budget with a view to trying to avoid relegation or get into the Champions League? Um, some clubs effectively self-insure in the sense that they will put so much money aside into a pot each year. And this, this is what I do with, with Finley's dog insurance because dog insurance is, is nutty. So I, I've got a separate bank account, which I put you know, a few quid into each month. And and therefore, if there's dog bills, uh, you know, vet bills to pay, um, I pay it out of that. And, and that actually works out a lot cheaper than the, than the premiums you pay. So you, so you can do a little bit of uh, you know setting money aside. And, and this is what some clubs will do. In terms of the players themselves, um, some players will have taken out insurance policies, but that is they are very much in the minority uh, because you know if, if you're if you're 21, 22, you're gonna, you're going to live forever. Yeah, that is. Yeah, you, you go back. To, you, you you think about about the risks that we took, uh, you know, personally and professionally when we were that age. Um, yeah, and and I can remember. Uh, you know, playing park football, uh, and you, you could take out insurance if you broke a leg and could, you know, you, you missed going yeah. into it. Nobody took those out, you know, it, it, and, th- and those policies were dirt cheap. And, and for a for a professional player, they would be be far higher. So some some players who are a bit more cautious will go down that route, but but not many of them. Again, the, you know, they will see it as a as a fairly large sum of money uh, that they have to pay out. In terms of clauses, um, there are. A, uh, yeah, this this is the club protecting its assets. If you have paid a hundred million pounds for the registration of a footballer, then then you don't want him going skiing and, and potentially ripping his cruciates uh, mm. in a skiing accident or playing other sports. You, you you go back to when we first started going to football and the number of footballers who are also cricketers. Yeah, you know the likes of yeah. you know Chris Balderstone and so on, and uh, and and that was uh, that was. It was it was a feature of sport, um, but football clubs won't allow uh, players to play cricket. I, I, re- I remember playing against Paul Scholes when he was about fourteen, and everybody knew he was going to be a good footballer. Um, and then I think he played against us the next year, and when he turned sixteen, of Tarnie's pro contract, yeah, no way was he being allowed by Manchester United to play cricket. It, well, was, course, it was seemed yeah. to be a dangerous sport. So um, the, the players, so the, the clubs will have. Clauses in their in, in contracts of employment with uh, with players, which will say that the following activities are deemed to be at a risk, and therefore, under your contract of employment, you cannot do X, Y, and Z. Doesn't stop them being dicks in cars, though. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, in in terms of sporting activities, there, there is a restriction. I think a lot of our listeners will be surprised to learn that this insurance isn't compulsory for, for players. But I'm more concerned to get on to asking you, Kieran, when it comes to dog insurance, what are the clauses? <laughs> as in, as in cause, you know, because dogs have got claws. I, I, I yeah, know, I know, I know. I should know how to explain that. <laughs> so is, is, Finley, is, is Finley not allowed to go skiing? Is that- <laughs> he's not. He's not. Which is actually, he's a very bright dog. So he, I, I wouldn't put it past him. I, just, um, I was just thinking about what what business Finley's <laughs> had interrupted. <laughs> Finley's business interruption insurance policy. 
So listen, if anything happens to that, this was Midsummer Murders, Kieran. This would immediately yes. be followed by that dog being kidnapped <laughs> and you getting paid a massive, and then the dog will be found in the boot of the Baroness's car. <laughs> um, next question is from Lloyd. Now, I don't know if Lloyd uh, just wants to keep his name to himself or whether producer guy's done it himself. It tends to happen with the third question from the end. The producer guy's interest <laughs> wanes a little bit. And he, he gets distracted by the sight of a falling £10 note uh, dropping he, he, casually he, out of his mattress. I, I, he doesn't do tenors anymore. He, he probably doesn't. <laughs> uh, but Lloyd says, with traditional broadcasting rights looking like they've reached a ceiling, you may disagree, Kieran, do you think we'll eventually get to a place where a global streaming service owns the top five league rights? Um, I, I think Lloyd is right to an extent that there is a ceiling in terms of traditional broadcasting rights, although uh, there's still a certainly domestically there is here in the UK for the overseas market for the UK. There is some growth. Um, what we are seeing is uh, and I did a bit of research into this and Lloyd, I, th- I think he's right because. Um, Eleven Sports, um, which I think is the the company which is owned by uh, Rad Razani, the, the Leeds owner, mm-hmm. um, they've just signed a deal um, to uh, sign up and, and market the TV rights for nine nations in Europe and sell them as a complete package. Now, uh, these nine countries are... Denmark, Iceland, Kazakhstan, Latvia, Northern Ireland, Poland, Slovakia, and Switzerland. So I think individually, they would struggle to to get a lot of interest in their rights to sell them. As a package for people who are looking to fill space uh, in in sports channels, then then they might have have some value. Um, it It would have to be a very successful streaming service to effectively monopolize the, uh, the the TV rights for England, Spain, Italy, Germany, and France, but it, it could be done. I think the one thing that's likely to count against that is that there does appear to be an increasing desire by the football authorities themselves to take the broadcasting in-house um, partially or in due course fully and sell that direct to the consumer as you know, we've heard it called Premflix and mm. uh, uh, you know, and, and Premier League Prime and God knows what else uh, because that way they they don't have to effectively give a slice of the action to to the existing broadcasters. The downside of that is they're, they're not guaranteed that the monies which the which the uh, the broadcasters commit to them. Our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Liam Reynolds, and it proves yet again that one of the things that really fascinates football fans, I find, um, is the the economics of football kits, replica kits. Because in the last three or four years, most football fans have become very aware that they're sold for a lot more money than they make to produce. Um, And people are starting to be wary about that and... Uh, I know quite a few people who won't buy replica shirts because of the conditions in which they possibly are made. But Liam Reynolds says, if a shirt costs £50, how much of a profit would the club make from that sale? And how much of that £50 would the club receive? Second question, how much of an impact do fake football shirts being sold on eBay and other websites have on the bigger club's finances? I'd imagine not that much, but it would be nice to know. Right. In terms of a 
50 pound shirt uh, and and the days of the 50 pound shirt i think we're now sailing beyond those absolutely yeah um and and that you know football football shirt inflation uh is 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 something i i, I will when when i get when i do get some free time which is quite rare um i'll, I'll see if i can track what what's happened in terms of shirts because i think they get quite a few of the the big clubs are now going for 70 quid a pop yeah. Um, well, so, Kieran, I have to point out that football shirt inflation is what happens when I put one on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sadly. Yes, I, I've gone from uh, L to XL to XXL. <laughs> they make they, they got they got tighter looms. That's what I'm claiming. Yeah. Well, do you know what? That's but before. Sorry to interrupt, Kieran, but a, a friend of mine always says that if you're buying an XXL shirt, it should cost you twenty quid more than a medium because there's more material involved. It's like you'd think that clubs had noticed that, but apparently not. No. no oh, well, just, now just wait till next year's kits come out, courtesy of Kevin Day. They'll be going. <laughs> you know, we, we, are, we are, we're delighted. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, 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 I'd patent that if I were you. Yeah. Um, the, the the average commission we we believed is around about seven to eight percent. So therefore, on a fifty pound shirt, a club will be making four quid. But on top of that, they are getting a flat fee. So yeah. uh, who who are pals with Puma? Yeah, yep. Yeah. So so Puma will say we will pay you you know X million pounds plus seven percent on every shirt that you sell. So so the club's not making um, a lot of money on on the marginal. Uh, trades, but uh, you know, in order to get the Palace contract, or yeah, we've got a contact with Nike, they will pay us um, so much. And Adidas, for example, pay Manchester United seventy-five million pounds a year as wow. a guarantee, unless Manchester United fail to qualify for the Champions League two years in a row, in which case there's a twenty-five percent uh, penalty kicks in. Yeah, and um, Liverpool got a very different deal, haven't they? Yeah, Liverpool have have actually agreed a lower fee but a higher commission. Yeah. They're, they're on; yeah, it's estimated to be twenty percent commission on right. each shirt. Um, they believe that uh, using Nike's roster of you know superstars promoting Liverpool as a brand. Um, you know they, they've got the basketball connections, they've got some of the tennis connections and other sports as well. Then that they can actually start to sell more years. Yeah, and, and they 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 will have done their sums very very carefully because I, I've learned that the people at FSG who are in, who own Liverpool, um, if, if you think that I love a spreadsheet, I've, I've got nothing on them <laughs> uh, by, by all accounts. Um, mo- moving on to the second part of Liam's question, um, I, I think you're absolutely right. The uh, you know, if, if you, you and I, if we, if we go down, you know, Oxford Street, we will see blokes selling fairly ropey uh, looking, yeah. uh, re- you know, fake replica shirts uh, for twenty or thirty quid to tourists. Um, there, there, there is a market for this, uh, partly due to the fact that you know, if, if you're a parent and you've got two or three kids who are all mad keen supporters of club x y and z um and remember the shirts which used to last two seasons are now being changed every year um you you are subject to a bit of pester power and you know the costs are uh yeah they're difficult to justify in terms of the you know the cost of the materials and the cost of the you know the cost of the labor that goes into them um so there is a market for that but there, there will always be a market for counterfeit goods for Anything which is a 
highly in demand brand, you know, and, and that you know, goes from Gucci to uh, you know Manchester United and Liverpool. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think the the I think the clubs lose huge amounts because everybody we you know, we've been conditioned to like the authenticity uh, yeah. of a shirt. Um, overseas, I think it's perhaps more of an issue. Uh, certainly, when I've gone to to some countries overseas to teach, uh, they it's not the the type of shirts that you can get in uh, you know in these stalls in London. They are they they look pretty authentic. Um, and, and I guess that's where the clubs are losing out. But you know, you know, you're buying a fake shirt because of the price that's being charged. Yeah, the thing is, if you go to Milan, for example, you, your fake shirt will be lovely, but it won't fit. Yes. Even, even their XL in Italy is a medium, essentially. <laughs> Our final question comes from Gerard Hilderley, um, which is a great name, Gerard Hilderley. I think if I'd been an actor in the 30s, that would be the name I would have taken, <laughs> Gerard Hilderley. Uh, Gerard has a very good question to end this pod. Gerard says, could you be kind enough to explain the financial decision behind Leicester City using a third party to sell back their sponsorship deal to the club. Great to see Leicester win the FA Cup, but on hearing so many pundits applaud the club for prudence and financial conduct, I was wondering if this really is the case. Now, Leicester, I think, are a club we've all grown to admire in the past couple of years. And I think none of us minded when they won the Premier League, but they've kind of pulled a number on us a little bit, Kieran. There's been a bit of smoke and mirrors from Leicester, they've presented themselves very much as financial minnows, but that's never really been the case, is it? That's right. And to to look at this story in in uh, in depth, you have to go back to um, twenty fourteen, and what happened there was that uh, Leicester's new new tie owners had come in. Um, the the wages had doubled within three years. Uh, you know the the owners had put money in, and Leicester were in danger of a breach of financial fair play. So they signed up with a company called Trestelar, um, and Trestelar operate from uh, the the premises of a printing company, I think in Sheffield, and they don't have a website and they don't have a phone number. But right. even so, they managed to, uh, and, and Leicester gave them a contract. Say, will, will you go and sell our uh, our sponsorship rights and our commercial rights independently of the club in Asia? And, and they did this very successfully. They managed to get those uh, rights up from eight to eighteen million pounds. Um, and and it just so happened that the 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 company that to whom they sold the rights happened to be a company owned by. The owners of Leicester City. Pure coincidence. Mm. Absolute coincidence. Easily uh, happen. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and on the back of that, uh, Leicester you know, recruited well. Uh, they they were promoted to the Premier League, and uh, they, they went on to to win it in 2016, which I, I still think is you know, the most astounding achievement in in terms of Premier League football this century. Yep. Um, but the 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 EFL said we want to in- investigate this a bit further uh, it turns out that this company Tristellar, uh is owned by the I think it's the son and the daughter of Dave Richards who used to be I think a Premier League chief executive or Premier League chairman pure coincidence of course who at, at one point uh, he, his name was being linked with being the chief executive of Leicester pure coincidence okay. um, and um, eventually 
Um, if you take a look at Leicester's accounts, go into the small print. Um, Leicester agreed a three million pound fine stroke settlement with the EFL uh, in relation to financial fair play issues. But of course, by that stage, they'd already won the Premier League and. Yeah. This this particular issue uh, very much flew under the radar. Hmm. It's a very interesting question. Thank you for that, Gerard. And thank you to everyone who's made a donation to the pod via our Patreon site. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution yourself to our always free to air pod, then go to patreon.com slash price of football. And if you have a question you like answered on the show, email us at questions at price of And before Kieran goes to renew his insurance policy in case of a lack of wonky chumps for Fidley, I will hand him over to hand you over to him for his customary farewell. Well, I, I've, the, the usual nonsense is no relevance. Um, this is our 200th show, but far more importantly than this, uh, you know, I, I'm Kev, Kevin's father, Kenny died a couple of days ago. It, it's, it's an astounding achievement. First of all, for you, Kevin, to be here on the show, you know, you, you, you must've been through, an awful lot. All that I can say is that you know I've got to know you over the past couple of years, and you know, an an off air, you've always spoken about your father with such love. Uh, you've told me all the stories about him and, and all of the fantastic times that you've had with him. And all that I can say is that from myself and from Guy and, and many of many of the listeners who've been in contact. We're so sorry about your loss. We, we we're sending you all our love. I know it must be really tough for you and uh we just want to know that we're with you and we want to do all we can with you uh thanks Kim. thank you I, I appreciate i can't tell you how much i appreciate that and uh everything the kindness i've been shown by everybody's been overwhelming uh thank you again i'm uh, bereft <laughs> Uh, thank you. I can't. I, I, sorry, I can't say any feels, but no, no, uh, thanks. Okay, so as for everybody else, we'll see you when we next see you. Look after yourselves. Stay safe and love to all. Bye bye. Buy some football.